We're continuing in our study on the Sermon on the Mount, and this is an apex passage in the sermon, and is one of the most hard-hitting passages that I've come across in the sermon and perhaps in all of the Word of God for how we're supposed to respond. We are doing the impossible when we live this passage out by the Spirit of God. And I was just going to tackle verses 38 through 42, but... Because the message seems to go together with 43 through 48, we're going to be looking at 10 verses this morning, and specifically about our Christian responsibility to love our enemies and to pray for them. Let's bow for prayer. Father, we pray that this text would hit us between the eyes. I pray, God, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear this morning. Lord, this is a passage that shakes us out of our comfort zone and is a spiritual gut check for who we are as sons and daughters of the King. So God, I pray that you would give us the humility to receive these truths this morning by your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Follow as I read the words of Christ, verses 38 and following. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven, for he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you only, if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Let me ask you a question. Is your life any different than anyone else's? We know a lot of good people, don't we? We know people, even though they're sinners and they might be unbelievers, they might believe in different teachings other than the Bible, but we know people who outgive us and outdo for people, outdo us in doing for people. People who give out of the overflow of what they have, both their time and their money, they're philanthropic. They're straightforward, they're good, honest people. They volunteer more than we do and kind of put us to shame. That being the case, this text targets something that's in each one of us as a Christian. Something that no matter how good somebody is who's a non-Christian cannot do in and of themselves. Jesus is saying that as a son or daughter of God... You have something more to you than everybody else. And that something more is love. A kind of love that is the fruit of the Spirit where you love people who would even abuse you. Your heart doesn't retaliate, it loves. That's the heart of a believer. And that is something that makes a person stand out in contrast to everybody else. You stand out. You're a peculiar people and your faith is obvious because there's something more to you. There's something that God has done in you that people can see. If you're taking notes, there are two ways you stand out as a son, or I would add a daughter of God. There's two things about you. Number one, verses 38 through 42 You take abuse. Now let me say up front, right away, I do not believe, and I do not believe that the Bible teaches that 
anyone should be in an abusive situation, whether you're a man, a woman, a boy, or a girl, in an unprotected way. You should not be left in an unprotected way in an abusive situation. That's why we have the authorities. That's why we have the police. However, the Bible is teaching us here that when you are abused, there's something different that happens in your heart as a believer. First of all, you take abuse, and it begins because you are willing to deny your natural intuition. A person's natural intuition, when they are hurt, when they are insulted, when they are beat up on, when they are slandered, when someone's rude to them, that person's natural intuition is to retaliate, is to take revenge on someone else. And what the Pharisees were doing in this text here is they were taking a phrase from the Old Testament and propping it up as a way for them to justify this kind of revenge. They were taking one of the most famous phrases from the Old Testament, which is found in verse 38, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And they were saying, look, see, if someone hurts you in a specific way, then you have the green light to strike back at them. You have full liberty to do that. It's found in Exodus 21, 24, Leviticus 24, and Deuteronomy 19. It's been titled as a Latin phrase, the lex talionis, which means the law of retaliation. And what the Pharisees were doing, and as this teaching was getting mixed up and misconstrued, is they were saying, look, this is your opportunity when someone hurts you for you to retaliate and seek revenge. When instead, that law, which is one of the oldest laws in history, that law, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, was put there to restrain revenge, to keep people from over-retaliating. It's a law that's put in place, really, all the way back to millennium BC, that law was in place in the Code of Hammurabi, let alone in the Law of Moses, it was put in place by God to restrain evil so that punishment would fit the crime. It would keep the punishment very specific so that if someone did something to somebody else, the crime would um, be met with a fair and just punishment so things wouldn't go out of control. In fact, an eye for an eye didn't always necessarily mean that the judges, when they would look at the law, they would say, okay, you've taken his eye, so now we're going to take your eye. They wouldn't always do that because that wasn't always the best way to meet specific crimes. But it's a principle that was put in place to restrain evil. In fact, uh, one commentator put it this way. He was talking about how the law um, back in sort of ancient times would be such where if someone trespassed on someone else's land, that would be met by the person beating that person up, kind of tribe to tribe stuff. You know, and then if that person was beat up and he goes back to his tribe, then um, they would go over to the other tribe and they would kill someone. So someone being beat up would be met with homicide. And then the tribe would get mad at the other tribe and turn around and create a genocide. And so this lex talionis, this law of retaliation was a, a means to restrain that kind of violence. People twist laws up and mess things up all, all the time. It's even found in the fabric of our history as the United States of America. Perhaps the most noted and well-crafted influential sentences in the history of the English language is the phrase found in our Declaration of Independence, that we are granted life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And instead of this being a phrase that speaks to our civil rights and our dignity as human beings and our moral rights, our morality as a society, what people have done, and you know sort of the liberal agenda and what that has been, is they'll take a phrase like this and say, look, you've got the right to be anarchists, you've got the right to undo the fabric of marriage and the sanctity of marriage. You have the, unright, you have the right to, to live a life of, of freedom with no laws because you're pursuing your own happiness. And that wasn't the intent of the framers of the Declaration of Independence whatsoever. It's not a contract for license for, or license for amoral or immoral 
living. Well, it was the same thing with this law. The Pharisees were twisting things up to say you can be a mean person. If someone's mean to you, you can seek your own revenge back at them. Retaliation. And Jesus clears up this confusion, and he begins to do so with four different scenarios. You see it in verses 39 and following. Four different scenarios where someone abuses you, and you as a Christian are empowered to take it. Look at verse 39, the first scenario. This is where you are acting counterintuitively. The first scenario is where you are insulted. Verse 39. It says, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. You're acting counterintuitively here. This is where someone comes up to you and they take their hand and it's a backhand slap and they slap you across the right side of the face. What Jesus is not talking about here is he's not talking about every kind of scenario where someone would come up and punch you in the face. (laughs) He's talking about a very well-designed very premeditated, calculated insult that someone would land in particular at a person. It was called in ancient times the heretic slap. (laughs) And it was the idea that someone would come up and say, you're godless, whack. And they're documenting before everyone who's watching that this person is an unbeliever. What Jesus is saying is that in this particular scenario, where someone would slap you on the right side of the face, you need to be vulnerable towards them and not retaliate. That's what he's saying. He's saying you would be willing even to turn your cheek to be slapped again because you're not taking the insult to heart and you're not going to retaliate. It's very much in our day like a verbal attack. When someone would say something and slay you verbally, you are not supposed to retaliate. That's the different something about you as a believer. You don't respond in kind. You know, there was a time when I was attacked. I was uh, 17 and had just become a Christian. It was the same month that I had just become born again. And I was a senior in high school and was lifting weights uh, with a friend of mine. And, you know, I used to do that a little bit, um, lift weights. I know you probably can't. Um, tell. But anyway, I used to. And uh, I was walking out of the recreation center with this guy and, and this group of young teenagers surrounded us and sort of jumped us and moved the one guy who was my friend away from me. And they struck him and hit him and kind of sent him on his way. And then they began to swarm around me. And I thought, man, my only chance here is to get in my car. And so I put my key in and started to get inside. And before I got inside, I felt this stinging pain on the right side of my face. And someone had struck me. And that person had either a ring or some kind of instrument because it split the skin under my eye. And so I slammed the door and locked it and started to drive off. And as soon as I began to drive off, I thought, as I looked through these, the rearview mirror, looked at this group behind me, I thought to myself, I need to forgive that person that just hit me. And I was able to remember who it was. I, I spotted the person that hit me um, right, right as he did it. And I thought, man, I need to forgive this person. I need to guard my heart and think about how to feel about this person. And then I looked up in the rearview mirror and saw blood streaming down my face. And as the blood was coming down my face, I felt my blood start to boil. And so for the next Several days I was struggling in my heart for how I should respond to this person. You know, here I'm brand newly um, saved in the Lord, and I knew the Lord had done something significant in my life, and yet I was wanting to return to my old angry ways, and I wanted to respond with revenge. And so I'm not exactly sure what my motives were, but I found myself in a situation a week or so later with two friends of mine from high school that were pretty good-sized friends, and we had singled out this guy who had struck me on the face. And here we are in the parking lot. And people knew that I was now a Christian, but I was just sort of testing things and and pushing things to the limit as I'm standing there facing off with this guy. One of my friends took an instrument that he had in his hand, out of his hand, and there we were. And at that moment, I thought to myself, 
because the guy was kind of stumbling around and, and he had realized what he had done and how he had struck me and my eye was butterfly bandaged together and and he said, oh man, you know, I, I'm the one that did that to you. And I said, yeah, and I'm a Christian now and I forgive you for doing that. And he went, oh man, you're one of those people. Are you kidding me? And kind of fell apart. And, uh, and so it kind of ended at that point. And I found out a week later that because he was an angry um, young man, he at his school had been thrown through a lunchroom table um, in a fight that was a pretty big brawl and public scene. And so, you know, the Lord was sort of dealing with him, but he was dealing with me more importantly. And it was kind of a life-setting moment for me to say, you know, as a Christian, I don't have the option to stew and burn in my heart against people. And when someone strikes me and humiliates me or hurts me, what I need to do is respond with love and grace and with my identity as a Christian being put on display. That's what matters. And that's what Jesus is pointing at here. He's saying that to be a son of God, to be counted as somebody who's his child, you're a person who does not resist the one who is evil. Verse 39. Here's scenario number two, verse 40. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. This is being ripped off. This is when someone wants to rip off a poor person. That's the scenario. Because we're talking about the tunic and we're talking about the cloak. In other words, someone is suing someone else to get the shirt off their back. That's what it's talking about here. Because the tunic is the, the garment that's closest to the skin and would drape down to the feet. And would be sort of that, that jacket layer for warmth. In this Palestinian desert community when warmth was essential, especially at night. In fact... Um, The law said that you could sue someone for their tunic, but you could not have their cloak for more than a 24-hour period or for an entire 24-hour period because the person would need their cloak back for warmth in the night. And so Jesus is saying, in essence, look, if somebody is coming after you and they're abusing you, wanting to rip you off, be willing to not only give your cloak away, but also your garment. Be able to be willing to, to put your well-being at risk for the sake of love, for the sake of being godly. And practically speaking, it's a, a good principle to try to stay out of court in all situations, if at all possible. I know people who have um, been willing to be defrauded their money because they didn't want to go to court. They wanted to take the high ground And I'm not saying that you should always stay out of court or in these situations. You need to think through every scenario carefully and wisely and Christianly. But at the same time, Jesus is saying, listen, be willing to be ripped off. Be willing to be humiliated in this way because that's what God has done in our hearts. Number three. Be willing to be forced into labor. Look at verse 41. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. This is a scenario where the Roman government would sort of commandeer people. Like, you know, a movie scene where you see someone, you know, who's part of uh, the police force that would stop the car and, you know, pull the person out and say, I'm taking the car, you know, and, and they drive off. And, and the Roman government would do this thing where they would see the poor people, particularly the Jewish people in the land, and they would say, you know what, I am going to load you up now because I need to bring you into, you know, our our military for this mile for you to be loaded up like a mule with my equipment and for you to transport it for me. Jesus is saying in that situation, put a smile on your face and say, you know what, I'll take it two miles for you. It's pretty radical pretty radical. You're being abused. You're being taken advantage of. It's like an employer that says, look, you need to stay an extra hour. You need to stay an extra three hours. Even though you're not contracted to work any more than you're working, I'm saying you need to work more and do more and put on more um, for the sake of the, the company. And as a Christian believer, you see through that and say, you know what? This is the Lord's opportunity for me to not only go one mile, but I'm going to go two. That's what he's talking about. Simon of Cyrene, remember he was standing by when Jesus was going up to Golgotha to be slain on the cross. And he had the cross beam 
cross his shoulders and was, was being crushed under that burden because he had been weakened from being beaten and probably losing so much blood. And the Roman government looked over, the Roman soldiers looked over at Simon of Cyrene and basically said, look, you love Jesus, you carry the cross for him. It's the same type of situation. And Simon of Cyrene forever is documented in history for being obedient to the Roman government, but for serving Christ. You see? They go hand in hand. He was serving his Lord and Master and helping him through being obedient to this principle. Principle that may apply in your life even this week, where you're called to serve beyond what would be normal. Scenario four is being swindled. Verse 42, give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. This is talking about situations where someone comes up to you and they're begging for your money or for your possessions. And you're faced with a dilemma. You know, I mean, a lot of people will say, look, I don't want to give to this poor person because I'm enabling that person. I'm enabling their drug habit or their alcohol habit or their laziness habit. Right. And I don't want to I don't want to be party to that. I don't want to, you know, be swindled or abused. I think oftentimes we walk by too many people and harden our hearts. And perhaps we are guilty of James chapter two, where. James says that people will, will not have a faith that works because they walk by a poor person who's hungry and in need and they're saying to them, go in peace, be warm and be filled. A lot of times people will put conditions on their giving, right? They'll say, look, I'll buy you a hamburger, right? Like I know you want money to help yourself, right? But because you might be ripping me off, I'll, I'll buy you a Big Mac what if the person doesn't want a Big Mac? Just a thought. <laughs> just, just a thought. I know, I know. This stuff is real and there are people who are professional beggars and we have to be careful and we have to protect ourselves. But at the same time, Jesus is being pretty upfront here to say, look, if someone's begging from you, don't refuse them. Maybe stretch out a little bit. Maybe give a little bit more and trust the Lord in these things. I mean, think about it. In Matthew chapter 25, when we stand in judgment and Jesus says, look, I was hungry and in need. I needed clothes. And if you've done it unto the least of these, you've done it unto me. I mean, that's, that's what he's going to be talking about when we stand before him in judgment. And I'm not sure that it's going to hold, you know, a lot of water when we look at him and say, look, you know, I gave to the poor some, but I also exercised a great amount of discernment. And, and did not enable people in their laziness or drug habits, right? I'm not sure that's going to hold a lot of water or weight um, before the Lord. He's not going to say, you've done good, you know, unto the least of these, you did it unto me. And thanks also for using good judgment regarding um, your charity with people. You know, I, I don't, that's not the point. The point is just to give. It says, do not refuse the one who's borrowing from you. When we lend things to people, I just wanted to point out, I think it's best to lend as if we're giving stuff away. Happiness is not keeping a list of what we've let people borrow from us, right? The rake, the this, the that. It's just good just to say, just take it, return it when you can, and just give it away. Just give it away. I think that's what Jesus is pointing to. I mean, we're to be good stewards, I understand that, but we're also to give out of our own selves liberally. Freely, because it gives us joy. We'll look at the next section. We stand out as God's child because there's something more to us. And Jesus here is ramping things up. He's moving from the first section where he's saying, look, when someone abuses you, don't retaliate. Put up with it. And then secondly, when someone abuses you, you are not only to put up with it as if you're just neutral to what they're doing to you, you're also commanded to love. And to put that love in action, you're commanded to pray for the abuser. That's the difference for the Christian. The Christian will deny his or her natural intuition 
to be angry or hateful towards someone that's abusive to them. Verse 43, you have heard it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now, first of all, this is the idea of taking a truth in scripture and twisting it to where the Pharisees were adding a phrase as if it was scriptural. Leviticus chapter 19 says, love your neighbor. And what the Pharisees were doing is they were saying, look, if you're supposed to love your neighbor, which is your fellow Jewish brethren, then that by implication means that you hate all other people from all other countries and nations and people groups. If they're not your neighbor and you're supposed to love your neighbor, then by contrast, you are supposed to hate your enemies. That's what he's saying the natural intuition is. It's actually a classic statement of racism. Love the people that are like you and hate everybody else. Specifically, hate the ones that hate you. There's never a command in scripture to hate your enemy, by the way. I mean, David definitely did pray imprecatory prayers where he was praying prophetically in the name of God as a judgment on nations. I mean, he definitely did that. But there were people that took this too far. There were monastic communities in Jesus' day who would say things like, love the brothers and hate the outsider. Sounds like racist groups, even in our day. It's discrimination. That's why Jesus defined what a neighbor really is. A neighbor, according to his parable of the Good Samaritan in Luke 10, is anyone who's in need that you're in a position to help. Anyone. Not just someone who is like you. Anyone. Actually jives with the Old Testament teaching on how Israel was commanded to help people who were outside of Israel. Those who were sojourning through the land. Those who were strangers. Those who were seeking refuge. The Bible says in Exodus 12 that they were required to offer themselves to help them. And also in times of war... Exodus 23 says that they were commanded to take a wandering donkey or ox that was the enemies. They were commanded to take those animals back to their enemies. It's a command. But again, Jesus is ramping things up in this section. He's not just saying be neutral and don't just retaliate with your enemies or don't retaliate toward your enemy, but also to love your enemy and to pray for them. Those that are persecuting you. And this is counterintuitive. We deny our intuition and then we act counterintuitively. Verses 44 through 48. Counterintuitively. Because the Spirit of God has put something more in you to live this way. In 1958, in the Christian Century magazine, there was a critic who wrote an article on C.S. Lewis. And he was saying that C.S. Lewis didn't care much for the Sermon on the Mount. And C.S. Lewis gives a classic response as only he could do. He said, as to caring for the Sermon on the Mount, if caring for means liking or enjoying, I suppose no one cares for it. Who can like being knocked flat on his face by a sledgehammer? I can hardly imagine a more deadly spiritual condition than that a man who can read that passage with tranquil pleasure. Jesus is knocking us out of our comfort zone here. He's talking about something that is more than just a general principle. He's talking about people who are specifically persecuting you. Maybe you're undergoing some present persecution. Jesus is talking about those enemies. He's plural here. He's talking about specific people. He's not just talking about an enemy in general. He's saying your enemies that are persecuting you are the ones that you're to love and pray for. That's what he's saying. And frankly, this is such an all-in or all-out type passage that when you're all-in, the hammer blows turn into pangs of joy in your heart. 
Because when you cross the great divide and say, you know what, that person's hurting me, but I'm going to return love and prayer for that person, there's joy. It's the happiest way that you can be in this life. So much of our conflict, so much of our hurt comes from feuding and from animosity that when this is resolved in our lives, we're so much happier, right? And frankly, you can't really reason with an enemy, can you? You can't sit down and talk it out and say, hey, you know, let's, let's just hash through this. I know you're angry at me and I'm angry at you, but let's just come to a rational um, understanding and figure it out. No. So what option do we have? If we can't work it out, if we can't talk it through, and they're going to they're gonna keep hating us, then as a Christian, you're left with one of two options. You can either sin <laughs> or you can pray. You can either sin or you can love. That's it. That's what Jesus is saying here. The enemies are going to come, but if you pray for them, they might not change, but your heart definitely will. You'll soften. You'll have joy in your life. You'll be like Jesus who, when he was being struck with the spikes through his wrists and through his ankles, said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they're doing. He prayed for them in love while he was being physically abused as the son of God. A scholar said to return evil for good is devilish, to return good for good is human, to return good for evil is divine. I want to tell you a story. This is a sort of a real life, more common day experience with a passage like this. It's a pastor's uh, friend who were missionaries, who came back to town. This pastor is Kent Hughes. He's up in Wheaton, Illinois, at at his university church. And he had um, his wife's best friend um, came off the mission field, and their family relocated in, in town. And they moved from sort of a meager, um, rustic setting on the field to a pretty nice townhouse where um, the wife was especially gifted to make it homey and nice and sort of for them to replant themselves and, and cozy up in their new townhouse. And their experience was such that neighbors moved in where um, they were right next to them. And she says that they moved in and the one problem with their new beautiful setting were these kids who turned their front yard into a desert. You know, and I thought, man, you know, I've never lived in Illinois, so I can't be accused of this scenario with my kids. But especially since she goes on to talk about some of the things that they did. The kids actually used foul language, and they even urinated in their front yard. They were causing havoc in the neighborhood, and they were putting out windows in their townhome. And then the final straw was when one of the boys climbed into our friend's yard and threw a whole can of orange paint over the patio walls. Kent Hughes says, my wife's friend was really angry, really upset. She did not like her neighbors and she was not happy with the Lord for putting them there next to her. Realizing, though, that her heart was not right, she got down on her knees and said, Lord, you know that I do not like these people at all. God, help me to love them. She did not feel any different, though. But she resolved to exercise love, so she baked her neighbors a pie and took it over and began a caring relationship with them. When the neighbors moved away, she wept, even though they never changed. Here's what C.S. Lewis says about this in principle, and I just want you to sort of put your seatbelt on and listen to some more reading. I don't have it up for you on the screen, but just listen to this, because I think Lewis captures the essence of what needs to go on in our lives with enemies. It says, the rule for all of us is perfectly simple. Don't waste your time bothering whether you love your neighbor. Act as if you did. As soon as we do, we find one of the great, the great secrets. When you are behaving as if you loved someone, you will presently come to love them. If you injure someone you dislike, you will find yourself disliking him more. If you do him a good turn, you will find yourself disliking him less. The difference between a Christian and a worldly man is not that the worldly man has only affections or likings and the Christian only has charity. 
No, the worldly man treats certain people kindly because he likes them. The Christian, trying to treat everyone kindly, finds himself liking more and more people he goes on, as he goes on, including people he could not even have imagined himself liking at the beginning. So instead of praying about whether or not to love your neighbor or love your enemy, just do it. Just go there and love them and pray for them and watch your heart change all the while. The world will reach out to people because it likes certain causes or likes certain people. But as Christians, there's something more that God has planted in you where we will extend ourselves more even to people who are coming after us. Now, I struggled with this principle even yesterday. <laughs> Here I am studying this text. It's giving me, you know, knocks on the head, in the soul and in the heart. And I'm thinking, man, I need to love people more. And I read the Anchorage Daily Newspaper. And I look down at two of the top world news articles, little sound bites, and it says, Drug gang leader claims he had embassy worker killed. The leader of a Mexican drug gang says... He's the one who ordered the slaying of a pregnant U.S. consular employee and her husband. I just, you know, you just sort of react to that. And I I don't know if they put that in there to make your blood boil, but it upset me because I thought, man, there are people out there that are enemies that I'm struggling with. But I had to remember this passage and think, you know, You have to love your enemies, even people that would do something as despicable as this. And then I read just down the page, suicide bombers attack aid base run by U.S. Six suicide bombers rushed a U.S. aid compound in the northern Afghan city of Kanduz on Friday, killing four security officers and injuring 23 other people. You know, I think it's easy to go, well, this is wartime stuff, and so they're enemies, and so it's fine for me to feel hatred for them. But then I was reminded by the fact that God made these people, and he loves people from every tribe, tongue, nation, and region. Loves them. Loves them all. And it's our opportunity to love people internationally. Even people who are sworn enemies of our country, we're to love them no matter what. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the man who was a theologian and a pastor, a German, he was executed for being part of the conspiracy to execute Adolf Hitler. He was executed right before the end of World War II. But this is what he said about loving your enemies. He says, this is the supreme command. Through the medium of prayer, we go to our enemy, stand by his side, and plead for him to God. Thought that was good. We're put in a a strange dilemma as Christians because we're rational people. We know that people can become our enemies, and we we know that God's justice will be served against them. But at the same time, we're called to love them. Reflecting on this passage and Romans twelve, John Stott said, "You know, you find yourself in a." Unique situation when someone has burgled your home. And he's reflecting on Romans 12, 20, where it says, If your enemy is hungry, give him bread. If he's thirsty, give him water to drink. John Stott said, you know, if somebody's in your home, you might find yourself in a strange dilemma where you're calling the cops on them and restraining them, but at the same time giving them food and water to meet their needs. Christian life is unique like that, isn't it? We're always going to have enemies. We're always going to have struggles. But there is the call, like that woman who just, she just made the choice to get on her knees and said, I don't like them, but I'm going to love those neighbors. I'm going to work it through and put on Christ because there's something more. Why? Why do we do this? Look at verses 45 through 48. We do this because we want to be affirmed as sons of God. God has changed us. Verse 45 Pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. Doing this does not earn our sonship, but it affirms our sonship. You are sons and daughters of your Father because God's like this. God is indiscriminately loving the world at all times. And just like God loves 
every nation and all kinds of people, people who are his sworn enemies, we're supposed to do the same thing. God is the one who, if you look at verse 45, makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good. He sends rain on the just and on the unjust. You've got the good people's crops and then you've got the enemy's crops. And God's going, you know, I'm just going to, I'm going to part the clouds where the sun hits their crops and feeds them, but I'm going to keep the rain cloud over here on my enemy. No, he doesn't do that. He indiscriminately loves. He's giving life and breath and beauty and wealth and, and joy to people all over the world. Every time someone has a healthy baby, there's joy that's given to that person, whether they're a believer or not. Every time you have a meal, every time there's a kind deed that's done, that's part of the common goodness and the common love of God for the world. Theologians make the distinction between common grace and saving grace. And this is talking about common grace. In a spiritual sense, when people are born in sin and they are unrepentant, God does not immediately send that person to hell. He gives them common grace, an opportunity to hear the gospel and an opportunity to enjoy the beauty of creation and the joy of creation until they are faced with eternity. It's common grace. And in the same way, we are to have this kind of indiscriminating love where we love people, people who we think might be unlovable, and yet because of the gospel, they are lovable. They might not be lovely to us, but they're lovable because of grace. Look down again at your text. Jesus gives an example of this where he says, For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? Stop there. He's saying, look, tax collectors, they come around and, you know, they'll rip you off. And and as long as they meet their tax quota, they can overcharge you by being a master scam artist. And they can scam you out of money and they can skim the cream and keep that for themselves. But even those swindlers, they love each other and they look out for their own kind. If that's all you're doing, you're looking out for your own kind, people that you're comfortable with, then how are you better than them? First hour, I was thinking about the fact that this goes on oftentimes in grade school, right? Where kids, they will compartmentalize and they'll, they'll just spend time with people that they're comfortable around. But if a bully comes along, they feel like, man, I'm just going to shrink away from that person or I'm going to get mad and get even with that person. But really, you're called to love, love all kinds of kids. Nothing really changes, even in the adult world. We're to love all kinds of people, even the tax collectors. Look at verse 47. And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than, than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? That's where I'm building the idea of how there's something more to us as Christians. Jesus is saying, look, if you only love your brothers, what more are you doing? Christians are distinct. They're, they are those who can live out verse 48. Verse 48, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. What does this mean? This is a summary statement of all that we've just learned. A lot of people will break this verse out of context and say, look, this is talking about Jesus's requirement for moral perfection. It's, it's, designed to humble us to say, man, we can never live the law perfectly. But here Jesus is saying, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. So what does he mean? For certain, Jesus knew of the principle of 1 John 1, 9, that all throughout our lives as Christians, we were going to be confessing our sins and seeking repentance and resting in the grace of God as we sin. So surely this verse is not calling for moral perfection. No. This verse is saying that as a believer, you are supposed to obey God's word out of a transformed heart. You are someone who can take abuse, and you are someone who can love an abusive person. Why? Because God has softened your heart to do that. That's being perfect. It's living the law spiritually. Remember, the Pharisees were saying, you know, oh, you know, you need to obey the law perfectly externally, and I'm going to add more to it just to make sure we're obeying it perfectly. 
So the Pharisees were saying, do more and more to reach this standard. Jesus is going, no, no, you need to go deeper and deeper. You need to be spiritual people who are touched by the gospel, who when you are hurt by someone, you don't retaliate, but you respond with a soft heart of love. That's what it means to be perfect. Remember verse 20 of chapter 5, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. The only way our righteousness exceeds the scribes and Pharisees is because our righteousness is blood-bought righteousness that transformed our hearts to love as soft-hearted people. We don't retaliate. We don't seek revenge. We're not racist. We aren't filled with hate. None of that's named amongst us. We just love people with a gutsy love. That's what it means to be perfect, to be loving, to be loving, genuinely loving. All right, here's a few take-home points. These are spiritual reasons for revenge and for hate. There's a little sarcasm with this, um, but it's been a heavy-duty text, and so I figured we would you know, end on a sort of a sarcastic note just to lighten the mood. Okay, number one. God is using me to exact vengeance for him. This is a principle to justify revenge and hate. Right? We use these ideas to to try to prop ourselves up to say, you know what? I I can seek some vengeance here. I'm doing it in the name of God. But consider instead Romans 12, 19. Never avenge yourselves but leave it to the wrath of God. Number two, allowing someone's evil does not reflect God's justice. In other words, if I let that person get away with that or abuse me in this way, it's not glorifying God's justice. Well, consider 1 Peter four sixteen and 17. If anyone suffers, don't be ashamed, but let him glorify God through the suffering. And the Christians back then were getting beat up, but Peter's saying, look, just suffer and give the glory to God for it because he's the one who's going to judge. Number three, allowing a person to rip me off wouldn't be good stewardship. (laughs) Right? Yeah, God's given me this money and so I need to be extra protective of it. And so if someone's ripping me off, that would just go contra to stewardship here. But Psalm 50 verse 10 says, God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Matthew 6, 33, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added to us. Number four, allowing a personal insult does not bring glory to God. Well, Isaiah 42, 8 says that God protects his own glory. He says, my glory I will not give to another. So he can take care of that when someone insults us. Allowing me to be swindled would not be a good testimony or witness. It impedes evangelism. Look, I can't allow for this. I need to stand up to this because it's going to give me a bad rep as a gospel citizen. Well, you know what? John six forty four says that no one comes to the Father unless he's drawn anyway. So that's God's business, who's going to be saved and not. And so we do our best. And you know what? Being swindled and being defrauded could be the best testimony and witness that God could use altogether anyway. Because you're willing to do it for his namesake, for his glory. Number six, what he or she did was public and demands a public response. Well, we don't always match things in kind, right? Remember, the principle of an eye for an eye is not to give us license for revenge. We should be tempered by the gospel. And there are realities and situations where things do need to go public, where people need to publicly repent. But we also need to remember 1 Corinthians 13, 5, love keeps no record of wrong. Number seven, What he or she is doing interferes with God's plan for my life. If if I let that person get away with this in my life, then it's going to mess up what God's doing. Well, we don't always know what God's up to. And Romans 8.28 says, God is working all things together for his good, for the good, for those who love God and who are called according to his purpose. And so we leave these things up to the Lord. Okay, well, let me give you a couple follow-on points here. Biblical reasons to retaliate. I can't resist to, to bring these up as well real quickly. When do you retaliate? You retaliate against an enemy when you're in a war. When you're in, when you're in a war, Romans 13, 4, if you are in authority as a protector of a country, then you're supposed to use the sword. That's what God intended, Romans 13, 4. 
Number two, retaliate if you're a peace officer or a citizen acting as a peace officer. In other words, if you're the police, you're supposed to retaliate. You're you're doing it in the name of peace. And again, God has designed for you to be functioning in that way. I'm not a pacifist. I'm not someone who says there's, there's no response back to an enemy. Isaiah 117 and Psalm 82, 3, it talks about defending the orphan and the widow. Uh, Psalm 82 says, give justice to the weak and fatherless. We're supposed to be protectors. Number three, retaliate to protect your family or yourself. I uh, am citing Luke chapter 11, 21 through 22. And it talks about, that's the parable where Jesus is talking about the strong man who's fully armed and guards his place and his goods to keep them safe. Now, Jesus isn't principalizing being a protector in your home, but he's definitely not against it. And I think he's saying here that you are to be strong for your family and protect them. First Timothy 5.8 would also reflect this. He who does not take care of his own family is worse than an infidel. Number four, retaliate when it's not personal. The number one idea here in the text is that when you are attacked and it's personal, you need to first and foremost have a spiritual response of love and prayer. Paul said, I am crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. This kind of person is a person who can take abuse and who can love the abusive person. And you'll stand out if you're this way, I promise you. If you think that your Christian life has been stale and stagnant, just respond like this. Respond in the way that Jesus is commanding us to respond, with love and prayer. You take abuse and you respond with love. You return love for that. It will transform your heart, and it will probably affect your enemies. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we are your Christians. We are your children. And Lord, we thank you that you acted indiscriminately when you saved us. We were your enemies, and God, you changed our hearts. You interceded for us by your Holy Spirit. You drew us by the power of the Spirit and caused us to see with the eyes of faith who you are. And instead of being our enemy, you became our friend and our Lord. I pray, God, that if there is anyone here who does not yet know you, that you would transform his or her heart, that, Lord, you would cause all of our congregation to be a soft-hearted people who can say that we are being perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect. We are acting in love as you have acted in love towards us. I pray, God, for the specific scenarios that you have prompted in the hearts of each one here, areas where they might need to seek forgiveness or start to love people that they thought they could never love and do it by praying for people. I pray, God, that this would be what we are known for. It's for your glory and honor that we pray. Amen. Let's stand.